In 2014, actor and comedian Jerry Seinfeld won a Clio Award. Fun fact, Clio Awards are Oscars for acting in commercials. And so in 2014, Jerry Seinfeld won this award for his performances in the American Express commercials. Now that may not be very interesting, uh, but what he said in that acceptance speech I think is very profound that really connects with our pastors this morning. Let me share with you what he said in that acceptance speech. I love advertising because I love lying. Opening words. In advertising, everything is the way you wish it was. I don't care that it won't be like that when I actually get the product being advertised. Because in between seeing the commercial and owning the thing, I'm happy. And that's all I want. Tell me how great the thing is going to be. I love it. I don't know need to be happy all the time. I just want to enjoy the commercial. I want to get the thing. We know the, th the product is going to stink. We know that because we live in the world and we know that everything stinks. Closing line. We all believe, hey, maybe this one won't stink. We are a hopeful species. Stupid, but hopeful. <laughs> Profound words from Jerry Seinfeld. You know, it's not just the products in our world. You know, like they don't make them the way they used to be. But things in our world are broken. Our relationships our workplaces, our communities. There's brokenness all around us. Uh, prior, uh, the end of the summer, the guy who mentored me in, in pastoral ministry lost his eldest son, or sorry, his middle son to cancer at age 33. The next day, his niece died of stage four colon cancer. Brokenness. It's not the way it's supposed to be. This world is broken. Things don't work. We, relationships don't work. And we look out and we see the mass shootings. We see racism rampant in our culture. We see poverty ongoing and, and, and patterns and, and habitual uh, of the poverty just going on and on and on and on. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. In the words of the immortal Jerry Seinfeld, it stinks. And if you're here this morning and you feel that weight, I want you to, to know that the Bible, and God affirms that doubt. Yeah, this world is broken. We're not here to put us, you know, put everything in a silver lining and put hope on something that, that you're dealing with, you're struggling with, just in that brokenness. However, Seinfeld is also right in the sense that we are a hopeful species. We do have hope. Why? This passage is going to lay out for us what that hope is. The lifting up this house. You know, the people hearing these words for the first time were dwelling in deep darkness themselves. Longing for this world to be renewed. And then the prophet Isaiah comes along and says, Here's 
here's some hope. Here is the hope. The house of the Lord is going to be lifted up. And it's going to change and transform your world. So as the house of the Lord is being lifted up, there's going to be three things that happen. The first thing that happens is that the Lord is going to be more exalted. He is going to be worshipped above all other gods. He's going to be exalted. Uh, In the Old Testament, in ancient times, God's people would journey up to a mountain. They would make a journey up a mountain to meet with their deity. The Israelites, there's the, the, the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 to 134, where God's people sang or prayed these psalms or songs as they journeyed up to Jerusalem to meet God in, and with his people in the temple in Jerusalem. In the same way, the nations surrounding who worshipped other gods, they would go up the mountains to meet with their deity. And so it was a custom to go up to the mountains to meet with their God. Now, in the Bible, the word mountain and temple and house are synonymous. When you talk about going to the temple, you're talking about going to the mountain, or going to the mountain, you're talking about going to the house of the Lord in the temple. So they're referring to the same thing. And in our passage, there's this, this powerful vision that this house of the Lord is going to be lifted up. This temple is going to be lifted up above all other gods and all other nations. And he will be worshipped above all that. There's two problems, though. The first problem is the temple was located in Jerusalem and on Mount Zion. If you do kind of a cursory look on topography or biblical topography, you're going to notice that Mount Zion's about 2,000 feet up. It's basically a hill. It's like, you know, smaller almost than the Poconos, okay? It's not a very high mountain. But the second problem, and probably be more profound, is that God's people, particularly the southern kingdom of Judah, had been overrun, had been overtaken, had been captured and taken off into captivity by Babylon, And the temple was destroyed roughly around 587 before Christ, B.C. So, some real problems. How is this mountain, how is this house going to be lifted up if it's not the tallest in the world? Or if it's not uh, still in existence? Or it seems like it's been overwhelmed and overtaken? The hint in our passage is that the fact of the matter is... Isaiah's not talking about a geographical place. He's not talking about a physical mountain. He's not talking about a structure, an actual building. But he's talking about the house of the Lord being lifted up in a spiritual sense. And what is that sense? What is that sense that is being lifted up this morning? It is none other than than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not a building, it's not a mountain, but it's actually a person. In the Gospel of John, Jesus hints at this when he says this. He says, 
that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, and that all men, all men will be drawn to him. How is this, how is this Savior being lifted up? What is he speaking about? He's speaking about being lifted up on the cross. That the mountain of the house of the Lord is in a person and that person's greatest climax is being lifted up is on the cross, dying for his people's sins. Those that try to climb other mountains that go other routes to get to God, he's dying on the cross for them. That is his greatest glory, his greatest climax. He's being lifted up. And I submit to you this morning that, that many of us do indeed try to climb other mountains. In the, in the ancient times, as I said, they would climb the mountain in order to meet their deity, to meet with their God in the mountain. And, and metaphorically speaking, we try to climb mountains in two different ways. Either it's done by our religious performance, uh, trying to earn or to keep God's love and acceptance by our performance, whether it's involvement in church, uh, reading our Bible, you know, doing religious things, helping the poor, whatever it is, we can do those things in order to say to ourselves, we will be loved and accepted by God if I do this, this, and this. I'm loved and accepted by God by what I do. And that is climbing the mountain of religious performance. You may be saying here, well, well I'm, not a, I'm not a religious person. I, I don't try to please God with my religious acts or any kind of uh, performance. But oh, you do, you do worship. You do worship. And the way that you do that is by climbing the mountain of building your identity on something other than God. It may be your career. Uh, it may be your marriage. It may be your family. It may be uh, material things, some sort of success or approval of others. You're living for and you've been climbing that mountain over and over again, in a, in a sense, to, to get to the top of the world because you're, you're stuck in performance. You're stuck in trying to earn people's approval. Look how great I am. Trying to build your identity on something other than God. One way that uh, I think is helpful to kind of identify this in our lives uh, is, you know, in Harry Potter, they had this mirror, the mirror of Ezerad, which is desire backwards, you know, that, uh, that mirror. Then when Harry looks into it, he sees what he, all that he longs for. He longs to see his parents, who he didn't know uh, ever in his life. Basically, he was born and chipped off, separated because his parents had died. What is the mirror that, when you look into it, what does it reflect back to you? What do you long for? What are your hopes? What are your dreams? What do you think about your whole life? What are what we would call an if only? If only I had this, I would be happy. That's how we fill in the blank. That's climbing that mountain of building our identity in something other than God. And the, the great secular writer, uh, perhaps Matt has shared this before with you, but the great secular writer David Foster Wallace in 2005 
gave a Kenyan college address in Ohio. Here's a commencement speech, and he says these famous words. He says, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. It will eat you alive. And perhaps some of you are dreading the new year because you've been always trying to climb that mountain, whether it's your performance, religious performance, or you've been trying to climb that mountain of building your identity on something other than God. And the problem is what Wallace is pointing out is it's a, it's a per perpetual hamster wheel. We never get off, and we're always enslaved by it. And in, in the end, it ruins, it ruins our relationships. It can ruin our physical health and certainly be devastating and destructive to our souls, killing our souls. And you may say, you may be asking, I know, but... I can understand that, but I, how do I get off? How do I get off the hamster wheel? How do I get off climbing the mountain and my own strength and power? Is there any hope? Listen to this. This is one of the hallmarks and the uniqueness of Christianity and all other philosophies. All other world philosophies and religions say you have to climb the mountain in order to get to your God, just like the other nations did, to climb to the mountain, to meet their God in the mountains. This God, the God of the Bible, comes down off the mountain, as it were, and comes down and lives the life you and I should have lived and dies the death that you and I should have died and rose again to set us free. That's what the word liberty means, to be set free. So we proclaim here, Christ has come to set us free. This God has come down, and you don't have to go up because he's already come down, and he's done everything that you need to do. And he has purchased your love and acceptance of the Father to you. You know, one of my favorite uh, comedians is Jim Gaffigan, and he has one of these bits in one of his stand-up routines, and he talks about John Paul II, where he went and visited the guy who tried to assassinate him. He's like, you know, he goes and he visits, like, you know, he visited the guy in jail and he forgave him? And then Gaffigan says this kind of smugly, he says, but, he says, but he didn't take him home. He didn't, like, bring him back to the back, hey, come and live in my house. But there is a difference. With our God, he not only forgives us and pardons us of our sin, but he brings us into his family so that we can call him Father. Isn't that glorious? Don't you want that? Do you not just know it in your head, but do you have it in your heart? That is how this Savior, this house is being lifted up in a glorious manner. And that's only point number one. Point number two, second point, is that as a result of this house being lifted up and the Lord being exalted above all gods, the nations come. The nations come. Consider what 
Isaiah tells us, he tells us that, and the nations will be drawn and they will come and they will say, teach us your ways, teach us your laws. Let us know this God. Well, who is included in this house? Who is included in this house? It is a marvelous thing. When you turn to the pages of the New Testament and you turn to Acts chapter 2, and you see, you hear this sermon, you read this sermon that the Apostle Peter preaches, and 3,000 people who are from all different backgrounds, nations, and, and are hearing the good news of Jesus in their language. And they come to believe in Christ. 3,000 people in one day converted by this good news of Jesus, brought in. You see, the nations are coming. It's happening. And it's been going on, and God has been telling his people throughout the whole Bible. In, I, part, in Isaiah, he's like, hey, people, widen your tents. It's stretch them out and, and see who's going to come in. And there's been several articles written about this uh, recently, about is, the, is Christianity declining? Well, maybe declining a bit in the U.S., but it's growing all over the world. And the center of Christianity is not in the West, in Europe, and the United States, but it's shift, shifted into the global South. And more and more people are coming to know this good news, this good news and this person of Jesus, this house, this temple of the Lord. I wanted to encourage you with some statistics here. Some statistics. Just take a look at these. It'll be up on the screen for you. These are taken from uh, a Joshua project. Globally, every day, approximately 40,000 people come to faith in Christ. Every week, an average of 3,500 new churches uh, open around the world. Phenomenal. In 1950, when China banned missionaries, there were 1 million believers. Today, there is an estimated 75 million believers and 10,000 new Christians in China in every day. There are more followers of Jesus in China than there are in North America. Astounding. Some more. Today, at least some portions of the Bible are translated into 2,883 languages of 6,877 languages of the earth. Who calculates these things? It's phenomenal. It's, the nations are coming. But I want to highlight something else. I want to highlight another thing, and that is the diversity of the people. I want you to look. I'm going to share some statistics first the, of the religions of the world, and then I'm going to share with what is happening in Christianity. So consider this. 90% of the world's Muslims live in one part of the world, namely the Middle East and Africa and South Asia. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia, and 98% of Hindus live in India. Contrast these statistics with the ones about Christianity. 25% of the world's Christians live in Europe. 25% of the world's Christians also live in Central and South America. 22% of the world's Christians also live in Africa. 15% of the Christian, world's Christians live in Asia. And 12 to 15% of Christians live in North America. That is astounding. The diversity, the spreading, the rapid growth, the expansion of 
this house of the Lord to include people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. This caused one Anglican scholar named Richard Bauckham to say these words based on these statistics. Almost certainly, Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion, and that must say something about it. That must say something about it. What does it say about it? Well, if you're uh, people that I've talked to about Christianity, uh, neighbors, people in the community, one of the things that they struggle with, and maybe this is you this morning, you struggle as you're stepping in here, maybe you're dipping your toe in the water of Christianity for the first time, and you struggle with, you know, if I believe this Christianity thing, then it is so exclusive that it makes, you know, Christians are oppressive. Christianity is intolerant to other things, uh, to other people, to other belief. I can't possibly give my life to that. But I want you to consider something this morning, and that is that Christianity is the most exclusive, inclusive faith. It's the most exclusive, inclusive faith. I would agree that, yes, there is an exclusive claim. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth, and that no one comes to the Father but me. That also levels the playing field. Because you don't get to God, you don't get God's love and acceptance based on your performance, or maybe your background, your religious background, uh, your pedigree, uh, maybe your, your nationality. There's nothing that says you are better than somebody else, that you will get God, more of God's love because of inherently in you. As is truth, reality is that Scripture says that we have all have sinned, and that levels the playing field, that we're all separated by God regardless of, of race, nationality, socioeconomic, whatever, or religious performance. But guess what? You're all welcome if you believe in this Jesus. And as these diverse statistics had highlighted, people are, people from every walk of nationality and walk of life are coming to know this Jesus. And I wanted to highlight just one other thing that is about this exclusive, inclusive nature of this faith. Here it is. We think about early Christianity, the first century Christianity. What did they do? Christians, Gentiles, Jews, Greeks, right, did not get along. And the good news of Jesus comes along, and guess what? The walls of hostility have been broken down there's no Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free. No one. We're all one in Christ Jesus. That is inclusiveness. Then you step down and you say, well, well let's, let's look for a minute about, let's talk about women. Women in the Bible, maybe you've heard it before, that their testimony was not admissible in court. <laughs> I saw the murder. I saw it happen. I'm sorry, you're a woman. You cannot give your testimony. It's not acceptable here. And who are the witnesses of the resurrection? Who are the people that Jesus 
encounters and loves. The resurrection, if you're writing a story, you would not do this, but it's women. Women are included in the front and center in that. Talk about, talk about for a moment, orphans. Children, if, if, if a Roman uh, father had a daughter he didn't want, he could chuck her in the river and be done with her. That's it. And Christians created whole communities and welcomed orphans into their community. And finally, people from every different socioeconomic stratosphere all, all over the walks, guess what? They are included as well. That, that there's no difference between the wealthy and the poor. Before God, they are one. The nations are coming. This house is lifted up, and the nations are coming. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that something you to be on board with and just watch God work? And guess what? You don't have to go overseas on a mission, although maybe God may call you. But the nations are coming here. The area that Matt referred to, I grew up in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. Man, has that, there is so much diversity there. And people are coming to hear the good news of Jesus. I got to preach in a Portuguese congregation uh, a couple weeks ago uh, in Willow Grove. It was amazing. People from all that around that. It's just marvelous to see. It is great to be a part of the most exclusive, inclusive faith. But then finally, as this house is lifted up and that nations are drawn in, there is this everlasting peace that comes. Everlasting peace. Listen again to verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Fascinating. Swords being uh, beat into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. What is that imagery? The imagery is that those instruments or weapons of war will no longer be necessary when this peace comes when this everlasting peace comes, they won't be necessary. So what do we need? But we still need to eat. So we're going to use them to cultivate the earth, to provide food and, and, and to enrich and to, and, to, and to seek the welfare of the people around us. And neither will nation need to learn war anymore. It won't be, nation will not rise up against nation. There's this peace that comes. Now the word in the Bible, peace, we think of, often think of it as like the absence of conflict. But it is, does not mean that. It means, it's a Hebrew word, shalom. And that word means wholeness, completeness. Both in body and in soul, in your mind, uh, in your relationship with the world, the earth itself, the relationship to this physical earth, and there's shalom, there's a relationship with each other, there's shalom, peace, and then there's the relationship with God, that peace that comes, that's everlasting peace that, that Isaiah is speaking about. It's going to come. And I ask you this morning, as you celebrated the Prince of Peace, right? We celebrated Christ coming, the Prince of Peace. Do your neighbors know that peace? 
Do your coworkers know shalom? Do they know wholeness? Do, do they see it in the way that you approach your work? When you think about, you're anxious about all the things you have to do or get done or overwhelmed by that, think about that your master is not your boss or even your clients, but is the Lord of the universe. And you work and you do your work and you spread shalom and wholeness and you seek the welfare of those around you by the way that you approach just your attitude at work and your relationships and engagement and things. Think about that with your neighbors. Think about that with uh, your family, extended family, and your communities. Think about it as Liberty Church right here in Harrisburg. What does that look like for the shalom of God to, to spread out? I mentioned that I saw It's a Wonderful Life, and, and, and George Bailey, right, he gets the gift. The angel, Clarence, says, this is your gift. You get to see what life is like without you, what the world would have been like if you were not born. What would, be, what would life be like if Liberty Church did not exist? Would that be a horror scene? Would anybody notice that shalom missing? You can only do that as only as you understand that God has made peace with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes, Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through him that you experience the inner shalom, that chaos is all around you, that you experience the shalom and wholeness because you have been made right with God and that can expend, extend itself on the horizontal level. Now let me illustrate the, the sense of this, this, this peace has already come and yet it's, it's not yet. We, we haven't seen the full reality of, it, of, of total and comprehensive peace and shalom. But it has begun. It was inaugurated as we celebrated in the birth of Christ. I don't know how many of you are golfers. I'm not a very good golfer. Uh, and oftentimes I go out and golf with three other guys because we play in these charity tournaments. Uh, not for me, but charity in terms of best ball. What that means is you play the ball that's the closest to the hole every time you hit it. So it's awesome. You're just like, oh, that was a bad shot. Well, Joe hit it right on the green so we can play his. A few years ago, I went out on one of these charity golf tournaments, and I was with uh, two other guys, and I was, I was privileged to go out with a couple of businessmen. A guy invited me, and two other guys, and the one businessman who invited me also invited a professional golfer. He was going to ensure that we were going to win that tournament. And so what happened was I walked up, whack, I hit mine in the trees. The next guy came out, hit his in the bushes. Another guy hit it into the sand trap, and the professional golfer went boop, right on the green. We're playing that ball. That does not mean that God is a golfer. Well, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that's exactly what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. He's taken all of our filthy works, all our disobedience, rebellion, elevating, climbing the mountain, our own strength and power. And what he's done is he's exchanged that for Jesus' perfect life. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we may be the righteousness of God. 
And you see how that begins the inner peace, the, the shalom that begins, that inaugurates that peace, that guarantee that eternal and everlasting peace will come. You can't have the second without the first. And it's a guarantee that the second is to come because he did it already for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Do you know that peace? Have you experienced that in your life? Will you take that with you as you go this morning into the new year and spread that shalom? The often quoted and overused illustration at the end of J.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings series, Samwise Gamgee, you know, it's about the, the getting rid of the, the, there's a fellowship of elves, dwarves, and hobbits that go to destroy the ring, uh, as Gollum says, precious. okay, to get rid of the precious, and they destroy it, and of course, Gandalf, the great white wizard, you know, he thought all was lost, he was gone, and then everybody's back together in the Shire, and they're, and they're all at peace, and Samwise Gamgee says these powerful words, right? Powerful words where he says, does this mean everything sad will come untrue? And yes, it is. The great author and writer, frankly, theologian in many ways, C.S. Lewis said that when he comes, he's going to untie things that are knotted and not things that are untied. Isn't that a great, isn't that a beautiful vision? Seinfeld was right. We are stupid, hopeful species because we know this vision as we go. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving us hope where we, Lord, we know, we acknowledge that our, our vision is very myopic, very weak. We don't see beyond our noses and we ask, uh, Lord God, to, to, to make this vision, this this prophecy to grow in our hearts as we live out and we go into this new year, that we would trust in you, that we would experience uh, your exaltation in our lives, that you, we would see people from people from every walk of life and that we would experience the peace and that we would spread it to others. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.